to stand on my tiptoes for this. Um, okay, so this is Acts 10, 23 through 48. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who drank and ate with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. God, thank you for the grand narrative of salvation, which goes not after the first people who heard the message, but after everyone. Thank you for going after people that we would cast out. Uh, Thank you for seeking us when we are sinners um, and when others say that we wouldn't belong. God, I pray that you would change our concepts of culture. Um, I pray that you change our viewpoints and teach us and remind us that you love everyone, even the ones that we don't like or understand. Um, God, teach us to love ourselves and to love everyone the way that you love us. We thank you so much. We love you. We trust you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nina. You can be seated. Okay, uh, when I was in high school, I did student council, and you know, you go to these student council convic- conventions, and they play all these games that are supposed to get you to think outside the box. 
So I want to start today doing a little, one of these like brain puzzle things, okay? Some of you are going to have heard this, and so keep your mouth shut. Do not give the answer, you punks. Uh, the rest of you are going to have a, a fresh chance at this, okay? So here's the story. This is not a true story. This is a little brain teaser for you to think about. A father and a son were at an event. Uh, their event wraps up. They get in the car. They're, on their, they're driving home. And on their way home, a car coming the opposite direction crosses the center line, and it hits them, killing the father. The son is alive and transported by ambulance to the hospital. He's brought into the operating room for an emergency surgery, and the, the uh, OR surgeon there says, I can't operate on this child. Call in another doctor because he's my son. The question is, who is the doctor? Who, okay, no, Emily, keep your hand down. No, who's the doctor? No, okay, if you don't know the answer, raise your hand. Oh, you come on. Okay, I think maybe we just have an above-average group of people. You guys are really intelligent, or maybe you're so prideful you won't raise your hands. But if you are vexed by the puzzle, then it, the puzzle has successfully revealed what it was intended to. It's supposed to uh, reveal gender bias. Who is the doctor? It's his mother. Okay, perfect. You guys are pretty smart. Good job. So, you know, the, the puzzle is supposed to reveal we see the world through a particular set of lenses. We see the world through our own set of eyes. And, and the lenses through which we see the world have been informed by our experiences and our family and our education, our faith. Uh, and, and, and all of these things shape the way that we interpret what is good and normal and right and all of this. The trick is figuring out whether the lens through which we see the world is giving us a picture that's accurate or whether it's skewed in some direction. So in the case of this puzzle, many of us like, oh, we didn't even think about the fact the surgeon was a woman in the story. As we read the story of, of the Bible, we find our biases and our prejudices can be confronted. Uh, for the last 26, 27 weeks, we've been telling a story out of the first century, the story of the ministry of Jesus, the story of the birth of the church. And all of this is told against the backdrop of the story of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, if you're familiar with the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, were born when God called a guy named Abram. He became Abraham. And God had a great uh, promise uh, for Abraham. This is what it says in Genesis 12 too. God chooses this guy and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. There's this beautiful sense that the Israelites really took to heart that God had chosen them. They were special. They were elected. They had been given this privilege and this power that was amazing. And so they had a strong sense of what you could call Israelite exceptionalism. They knew that they were special. They knew that they stood out among the crowd. They were the ones that God had given the law to, to which God had given the temple. They were like unique among all the nations of the earth. But unfortunately, too often they forgot the second half of what God had said to Abram. He said, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. But then he said, and all peoples on earth, all nations on earth, will be blessed through you. God wasn't content to just spoil and bless one particular group of people for their own happiness. Any blessing and power and privilege that God had given to Israel was to be stewarded for the benefit of others. 
And the same is true for us. Any power or privilege or blessing that God has given you and me is to be stewarded for the benefit and the flourishing of others. And so a question for us is you think about all of the ways in which you have been blessed through your education, through your family, through your resources, through whatever. How are you and how am I stewarding all that's been entrusted to us for the benefit of others? Are other people flourishing? Are other people excelling in one way or another because you've been entrusted with something by God? That's a great question for reflection. But way too often, Israel didn't take this lesson to heart. They treated their blessing as something that was supposed to end with them. And so in the first century and during Jesus' ministry and at the birth of the church, the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, who are Gentiles, was, was pretty strained. A Jew would not go into the home of a Gentile. It was just way against custom. They wouldn't relate to a Gentile. It was like their persona non grata. They're not supposed to have a relationship at all. And this is the situation into which uh, we read as we're reading the Gospels, and Peter finds himself ending up in the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. So this chapter was really long, by the way. And the difficulty of preaching story like we're doing in Acts is like you got to get a sense of the narrative. So I actually shortened the text, and Nina just did a great job with it. But let me remind you of the story that we've just read. The chapter 10 begins with this, this guy named Cornelius about whom we don't know very much, uh, except that he's a centurion. He's of the Italian regiment, maybe special forces of some kind. And he's praying at 3 o'clock at the time of prayer. Jews would pray throughout the day at appointed times. And even though he was a Gentile, he was a God-fearer, and he observed the times of prayer. And so at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying, and there an angel comes to him. And angel, the angel says, your gifts to the poor and your prayers have risen up before God, and it's been like a fragrant offering. And I'm going to do something really cool with you. Send to Joppa, that's 40 miles to the south, there's a man named Peter, and go grab him, he's going to tell you something I want you to tell him. Cornelius gets his posse together, he sends out the people for Joppa, that's day one. On day two, as Cornelius' people are making their way to Joppa to go find Peter, Peter is at noon fasting and praying. And imagine like at lunchtime, your body knows you need food, and Peter is fasting, he's not eating. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about food. And, and like if you're hungry right now, like just talking about food like pizza or a cheeseburger, like it makes your glands salivate. At the time of prayer at noon when he wants to be eating and his blood sugar is going down, Peter has this vision of God lowering a gigantic picnic blanket onto the earth. And there in front of him are all of these animals. It's like, oh, thank goodness, lunch. But the problem is, in his vision, all of the animals are unclean. And if you were a Jew, there's a, a strong uh, instruction about what you can and cannot eat. There are foods that are clean and acceptable and foods that are not and are, are unclean and you can't touch them. And this picnic blanket is full of unclean animals. And God says three times to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He says, I'm not going to do that. I know better than that. And God says to him, don't call anything unclean that the Lord has made clean. And then the picnic blanket goes back up to heaven, and all of a sudden, Peter hears, there's a knock at the door. And it's the, like the crew from Cornelius. Now, how freaky would that be? If you have what you think is like a vision, I don't have visions of God every day. I don't know about you, but imagine that like you had this ecstatic experience where you have a vision from God, and as soon as it's over, you hear a knock at the door, and someone's corroborating the story. 
that the day before, God had said, spoken to this guy Cornelius and sent him after Peter. And in his spirit, uh, Peter said, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, don't hesitate to go with these people. I know what you're thinking. They're Gentiles. You're not supposed to hang out with them. Don't hesitate because I'm doing something important here. So Peter, as a Jew, is confronted with this, this bias that he has against Gentiles, against this particular group of people. And I would, I would ask us to examine for ourselves, what is our equivalent? What is your equivalent of that group of people who, when you hear of them, you just go, ugh. You've got contempt in your heart for them. A group of people. Could be a political group. They're on the opposite side of the aisle from you, and when you hear a name that represents that group, you just think, ugh, them. It could be a social group. It could be an ethnic group. That, or it could be an individual person, someone that you've met, or it could be someone that you haven't met. Who is that person or who are those people for you that, like, if you're really honest, you've just got contempt in your heart for them? Who's your equivalent there? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved folks just like me. It's, it's like great when God wants to show hospitality or mercy to people that we already like, but how about people that you hate? Do you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah was a prophet, and God instructed Jonah to go to the people of Assyria in the city of Nineveh. These were wicked people. I mean, you can look up the history of the Assyrians. They were, they were brutal, brutal empire. God sent Jonah to the people of Nineveh to preach, and Jonah didn't want to because he knew God would show the Ninevites mercy, and he didn't want them to get mercy. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who's your enemy? Who's that group of people for you? So, all of a sudden, Peter finds himself in the home of Cornelius. He's gone with this group of people because the Holy Spirit told him to. They make their, their journey 40 miles, and all of a sudden, Peter's in the home of a Gentile surrounded by Gentiles, and he's got to be thinking, God, what on earth are you doing here? He, hears his, he tells his own story of the vision. He hears their story of how the day before God had been doing this great work. And then Peter begins to tell them the story of all that's going on with Jesus and the good news. This is uh, the Scripture, verse 36. Peter said, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And imagine you're Peter. You've grown up as a faithful Jew. You know how Jews and Gentiles relate. You've been called to the home of this Roman centurion. You find yourself in a room full of Gentiles, and you're telling yourself the story of Jesus, who is Lord of all, and you're realizing he's learning in that moment what God is doing, what that of all, God's heart for all really means. And he has one of those moments of clarity. Like, have you ever, like, believed something or you understood something, but, like, it, it clicked at a new level? Peter had preached this message before to other people. On the day of Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, all of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The message is for you and your children. And he's like, yeah, I get that. It's like, my people, us. And for all who are far off, the people who are different than me. And how now Peter is in the home of Cornelius, one of those ones who is far off. And finding himself, oh my goodness, maybe Jesus loves them. Maybe he wants to rescue them too. God's heart was not just for a particular group of people. God's heart was for everybody from the very beginning. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we could zoom out and see that God's been making this case ever before we heard the name Cornelius. 
God's been making the case in terms of who's God been showing mercy to. Do you remember the story of, of the church began to be persecuted, and so they scattered, and Philip went to Samaria, and, and the gospel came to the Samaritans. There was Simon the magician who had this great moment of repentance and transformation, and the disciples were in awe that the gospel went to the Samaritans who were, in their view, half-breed enemies. They were not the pure bloods among Israel. They had their own temple. They were despised, and yet the gospel came to Samaria. And then Philip was sent and, and, and met on the road this Ethiopian eunuch who was a Gentile politician, and the gospel came to a Gentile politician who was baptized and became a member of the family of God. And then last week we told the story of Saul, Saul who was a traitor, Saul who was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. God showed him mercy and his life was radically transformed. And then now we find Peter in the home of Cornelius who is an enemy occupant. God has shown mercy to the half-breed and to the Gentile politician, to the traitor, but now to the same people who had killed Jesus. This is what the story says in Acts 10.44, as Peter is telling the story of the gospel. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. In accompanying Peter's preaching, was the same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter first preached, when the Holy Spirit descended. Peter could have thought about the day of Pentecost as like God confirming his own racial bias, that God was all for the Jews and only the Jews. No, here, the Pentecost, fall, Pentecost falling again, the Spirit descending on the Gentiles was confirming and confounding. God was doing something totally, totally new. The same Spirit who descended on the Jews at Pentecost had descended on the Gentiles, proving unequivocally that God was not showing favoritism, but God wanted to rescue everybody. This is not surprising to those who've had their ears open. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said this. He says, look, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. In other words, it is way too small a thing to just rescue the nation of Israel. I'm also going to make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God was not content to rescue one family and one ethnic group. God's end game was to see salvation to the ends of the earth. God wanted to rescue everybody, all nations. When Jesus ascended on the day of Pentecost, he, he told the disciples something really powerful in Acts 1.8. Think about this through the lens of privilege or blessing or power. He said to those gathered before he ascended, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses. And it goes out in concentric circles in Jerusalem, in Judea, the region, Samaria, just beyond it, and then to the ends of the earth. And it's like in speaking these words over the disciples, Jesus was giving another Abrahamic blessing, that the power and the privilege and the blessing I'm giving to you is to be stewarded for the flourishing and the benefit of others, that all the nations may see the salvation of God. Think about those concentric circles, you know, starting with us and going out and out and out and out. We're 27 weeks into being a church. M many of us, uh, at, at the very beginning, all came from the same church, all came from another church. And as we grew and began to expand. There were some folks who like, like went, came from other churches. We grew a little bit. There were folks who had been de-churched, hadn't been in church in years, but had kind of a church history. I don't think God is content to just reach church people. Is God's heart just for the people who already like Him? 
What did Jesus say? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but those who already know they're sinners. I long and we long for Cornerstone to be a place where people who are no one, nothing like us will experience the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God wants to lead us to reach those people who don't know Him, who are not like us. So the question would be, how ready are we to be that kind of congregation that welcomes people who are nothing like us? How, how really practically eager and ready are you to welcome that kind of person? And am I to welcome that person into your world? Every week, if you haven't noticed, I say the exact same thing at the beginning of worship services. And if you never come on time, you've never heard it. I say the exact same thing every single week. Some version of this. I don't know if in coming here today you've had a great week or it's been a a hard one for you and you're coming in carrying baggage. I don't know if you've come in today feeling like, ah, I'm right at home, I'm with my people, or maybe you come in and your blood pressure is slightly elevated because of things that you've done, you feel guilty, or maybe, you know, coming into a new place. I don't know if you come in and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us, but I want to say to every one of you that it's not a mistake that you're here. The Holy Spirit has been at work slowly drawing you in toward Jesus and other people, and I want to say to every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome. I say it every week because I want to cast a wide net of invitation that everybody's welcome in Christ's church. Everybody's welcome in this hospital. But it's one thing to say that, for me to say that, and it's another thing for us to practically believe and practice that together. A culture of hospitality toward people who are nothing like us and people who do not believe the same ways that we believe, but we look at them through different lens because of what God has done for us in Jesus. How do we learn, though, to look at those people and look at the world through a new set of eyes? How do we learn to see other people through the eyes of Christ? I think there are three phases to to catching a new vision. The first one is you could call deconstruction. We've got biases. We've got prejudice. We have things in our heart that that are skewing our vision. We need to do a meaningful work of deconstruction, and we do that deconstruction through repentance. And maybe for you, there's a top-of-mind person or type of person or group that you know you need to repent of, like you've had a hard heart toward that person or that group of people. But I would venture to say that for the majority of us, the more important work of deconstruction is not like to stop hating a group of people, but, but the more meaningful challenge is apathy, that we just honestly don't care about people who don't know Jesus, that our hearts are like, you know, the world is so complex and diverse and pluralistic, I honestly don't care. And maybe the most important work of deconstruction that God could do in our hearts is is deconstructing that apathy uh, that we use in in the way we think about other people who don't know Jesus. Bob Pierce, who founded the Samaritan's Purse and World Vision, said this. He said, "'Let my heart be broken.'" with the things that break the heart of God. You don't conjure up compassion all on your own. Your your vision doesn't change by yourself. It's a work of the Spirit. And so Bob Pierce prayed, let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. If there's a person you hate, or if you're just apathetic, maybe maybe your prayer would be just help me to care or help me to start by just not hating their guts. Let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. And if our hearts and our vision is deconstructed through repentance, our hearts must be reconstructed through love. This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth. 
He said, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It's love that compels us to see other people differently. We're deconstructed through repentance. We're reconstructed through love, learning to see other people through the eyes of Jesus. But then that leads us to our third phase, which we could just call generally mission. And mission is primarily expressed through prayer and through evangelism. This is what Paul said at the end of that section. He said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our vision is deconstructed through repentance. It's reconstructed through love, but then we're given mission. We not only don't hate their guts, we want to see them flourish. We want to see them be well and be made whole in Christ. We do this through prayer and through evangelism. Evangelism is kind of a terrifying word for many of us. We think of like confronting people with a video camera like you see on like some of the religious channels sometimes. Evangelism is like scary. It's like something you don't want to do. But evangelism is, is an important thing. It's sharing good news. It's something that we're going to focus on strategically as a church in 2019 because we need to learn what does it mean to share our faith. I think it's of note that this great work of transformation and the gospel going to Cornelius and to the Gentiles happened at a time of prayer. Cornelius was in prayer, and Peter was in prayer, and God did this amazing work. I mean, how could you have, like, how could you have orchestrated this on your own? They're 40 miles apart. How is this Gentile centurion going to get connected with the head of the church 40 miles away apart from the work of God? It happened in four days that Cornelius came to know Jesus. If you read the text, it happened in four days. One person defined revival as the acceleration of the normal activity of the Spirit. Defined revival as the acceleration of the normal activity of the Holy Spirit. There's a person that perhaps you've been praying for, you've been brokenhearted for, you've been praying for them for a year or five years or ten years. There are those stories of spouses who just persevere in prayer you know, for their husband or their wife or their friend or their child. It happened in four days. Would we be a church that prays for that kind of revival, that sees the acceleration of the normal activity of the Holy Spirit? I long for our church to be a church that sees meaningful life change, not just among the little circles of de-churched people or people who are in our tribe, but among people who are nothing like us, people who are suffering apart from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I long for us to be a church where that kind of transformation happens, where we baptize a person and we know because we learn their story, holy cow, they really are moving from death to life. I long for us to be that kind of church, but it's not something that we conjure up on our own. There are seasons throughout history, human history, where groups of people were burdened, were given the gift of a burden of spiritual hunger and began to seek the heart of God together and see these great moves of the Spirit, these accelerations of the normal activity of the Holy Spirit. I long for us to be a church like that, but it's anchored in prayer. It happens when we're deconstructed against our biases, the people that we hate, the people that we have no feelings for, our apathy. We're reconstructed in love, compelled by the love of God to pray for people, to share the good news, to be on mission in the world. That's the kind of church that we all want to belong to and that we believe the Spirit is stirring up. We've got to break out of our apathy. 
May God break our hearts for the things that break His. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm full of a room of people who are driven. We've got goals. We have ambitions. And even on our own goals, we fail so miserably so often. We didn't hit our weight loss goals. We didn't, you know, spend the time with our friends or spouse that we wanted to. We didn't do the professional goals we wanted to. We can barely do that and take care of ourselves. How are we possibly going to do something as grandiose as participate in a spiritual awakening or revival or see life change in somebody else? We can barely change ourselves. If anything's to happen, it's to be a work of your Spirit. So we say, come, Holy Spirit, stir up in our hearts a holy hunger, a restlessness and a sense of discontentment that would make us uh, angry toward our own apathy and motivated to seek God in a new way. Remember the words of, of, of somebody who said, if we don't do something different, if we don't seek God in radically different ways than we have, all we'll do for the next 50 years is manage the decline of the church in the West. And we don't want to do that. Would you so stir in our hearts as a community of people and as individuals that our biases would be destroyed, we'd be reconstructed in love, and you would empower us to be on mission. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us your spirit, that it's not on us, but we do say we want this, we desire this. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.